Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. I want to start with a story that has horrified this country for a number of days now. And it's the road rage incident that took place in Calgary. And here's what uh, Jill Croto, reporter with Global News, wrote. A traumatized mother is bruised and nursing several stitches after a repulsive act of road rage. Quote, I'm glad I'm alive and here for my family, and they didn't lose me last night. End quote. Carolee Red Oldman, 28, and her 9-year-old daughter were on their way to pick up her husband and her sons from hockey practice. Red Oldman was driving a black Dodge Caravan, when a BMW tried to pass her at about 5.20 p.m. on Wednesday. She said the BMW was tailgating her, honking, and trying to force her into oncoming traffic. The vehicle then rammed into the back of her minivan, and they ended up together in the parking lot of the arena. Quote, he started yelling at me to get out of the vehicle. He grabbed my hair and pulled my head out of the window. I couldn't get my arms out to fight back, and he started banging my neck and my face and my mouth on the window. My daughter was screaming and crying to stop, and he still wouldn't stop. End quote. Story goes on that the despicable act intensified when she reached for a hockey stick from her van to try to defend herself, but the offender wrestled it away and smashed the windows. Quoting the victim again, I grabbed the hockey stick and he was throwing me all over the place. I was really scared, but I knew I had to protect myself and my family and tried my best to fight him off until someone came to help me. Her husband heard the screams for help, ran to his wife. The suspect and his passenger got back into the car and sped off, but nearly ran Red Oldman over as she laid in the parking lot. I'm scared to go out of my house. I'm scared I can't protect my children, she says. The two suspects are described as in their early 20s, with dark brown or black hair and medium builds, Police said one was wearing a light gray-white shirt. BMW described as a silver two-door with Alberta license plates, likely with extensive damage to the front passenger side and front bumper. What the hell is wrong with people, some people? We've probably all been engaged in, in some level of road irritation or road anger or even road rage. Because it's our road. Nobody else is allowed to use it. But, you know, you exchange half a peace sign with someone else, and you can see their mouths sort of moving because they're shouting at you, and then it's generally over. But this is just insane. Dr. Frank Farley is the past president of the American Psychological Association. He's a professor of psychology at... Temple University, and he's the People's Professor on uh, Psychology Today blog. Frank, what is this about? What, what, what state of mind does somebody have to be in to, to do this? Well, Roy, let me go through a possible road rage recipe, because in psychology we find that no human behavior is due to just one thing. It's nearly always a recipe. And so you can take a look at the ingredients and see if they add up to what happened here. But one of the first things to keep in mind is that, you know, the, the automobile in the 20th and 21st century is our castle. It's, you know, it's our space. And um, uh, North Americans have the highest per capita ownership of automobiles in the entire world. So our automobiles are very important. We're always moving around and going places. But let's take a look at a possible road rage recipe and apply it to this case. For one thing, uh, most of the perpetrators in these cases are young. The average age is in the early 30s. These two guys were in allegedly, it's an estimate, the early 20s. So they fit that part of the recipe. Um, They're usually males. In fact, the the best estimates on 
on this are about 95% of perpetrators of road rage are men. Uh, we know from lots of research that males tend to be more physically aggressive than females. Uh, so young, male, there's two ingredients. The third ingredient that struck me here was rush hour traffic. It was around about 5.30, as I recall. And so rush hour traffic can have its own uh, annoyances, its own frustrations. And one of the oldest theories of aggression that we have is called the frustration-aggression theory. That is, frustration builds up and we lash out. We become aggressive. So let's put that in as, as the third recipe. Uh, and, you know, they must have been really angry, though, given that they damaged a luxury car, apparently. <laughs> so they're either super rich or, or really angry. Another possible ingredient here that I would speculate would be maybe some drinking. Uh, had they been drinking? I would like to know that. My prediction is they probably had been. A uh, fifth ingredient would be the presence of another person in the perpetrator's car. We find that people will tend to be more, take more risks um, and, and more aggressive driving if there's someone else in the car with them. Uh, it sort of potentiates the, the aggression, if you will. And then uh, a sixth set of qualities would be the personal factors. For example, one that strikes me is, were they racist? Uh, I don't know if Carolee Red Oldman is a First Nations person, but perhaps she is, and perhaps they're racist along those lines. Another personal quality would be what we might call intermittent explosive disorder. And that's a standard uh, diagnostic label uh, that really would fit this behavior, intermittent explosive disorder. Uh, sort of related to that is, is the idea of impulse control. The prisons are full of people with low impulse control, and I would say that these two perpetrators clearly had low impulse control. So while most of us who get angry at another person in a vehicle, because it is our road, and uh, and we, we do, as I said, we, we exchange half a peace sign and we mouth unpleasantries at each other. It ends there yes. most of the time. Yes. But somebody with low impulse control and has those factors that you explained earlier takes it way beyond that level and then commits the act that that, that was committed. Now, what about this, this person uh, who did this, Frank? Any sense of remorse in this individual now, several days later, or do they not give a damn? Well, of course, I don't know. I'm speculating. What's, what's your guess? You know, entirely. Um, I, I would hope that they had some remorse. It might be as limited as they're looking at their the front end of their BMW. So remorse for themselves. Yeah. But again, I'm speculating. But, you know, anybody who's got a Beamer and they're a very expensive car and mm -hmm. you just by your own behavior, have damaged it. And you're going to have to explain that to your insurance agent or pay for it yourself directly. There's got to be some remorse. Frank, the aspect of people not reaching out to provide any assistance, is that the bystander effect? Yes, it is. And we see a lot of it, Roy. It, uh, one of the underlying themes in the bystander effect is what we call diffusion of responsibility. In other words, Somebody else will take care of this situation. Yeah. And so people just stand around and don't do anything on the assumption that somebody else will step forward. And, and here's an interesting thing. You will get better bystander behavior typically when there are fewer people present. You know, if there's only one person or two, you're more likely that a bystander will intervene and help than if there's a whole lot of people. And, uh, you know, we need active bystander you know, almost training in our schools yeah. to well, get, I, you, you know, know. look at bullying, for example. Yeah. You know, bullying can be stopped, generally speaking, quite quickly if just one person intervenes. Right, right. Well, tell, tell me what you think the potential for long-term emotional turmoil is going to be for this victim. She was physically, savagely assaulted. Yes, she was. And, uh, I would expect, again, I don't know her and, and so on, but I would expect that uh, this will have quite a long history for her. 
You know, uh, whether she will end up suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, I don't know. But PTSD often arises from such, you know, situations. Yeah, how could it not? Yes. How could uh, it not? I, yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, the thing about PTSD is kind of tied in with your memories. And, and uncertainty is, is a huge source of human fear. And she yeah. may have uncertainty going forward that this will happen again. She'll be driving in, in crowded, you know, rush hour traffic perhaps, right. and something terrible will happen again. Well, my, my, my sense as well, Frank, is it's going to have an impact on people who weren't even there, people who are thousands of miles distant from Calgary, who are hearing the story and may already be nervous or intimidated by others on the road. They hear this, and it may affect them. It could. Yep, we all, not all of us, but we, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we, we almost live in our cars. Right. And they're an essential ingredient in, in the lives of most of us. And we hear of these kind of incidents, and of course it's going to raise our anxiety. In her case, you know, she may re-experience it if something happens, not directly to her, but she's in traffic and, yeah. gosh, some kind of an incident happens. She may re-experience what had happened to her. Yeah, Frank, I do appreciate your time always. And we're going to take some calls and see what we hear from our from our callers about their experiences. But thank you so much. You're welcome. Always good talking to you, Dr. Frank Farley, psychologist, Temple University, past president of the American Psychological Association. He's one of us. He's Canadian. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. Uh, news reports from the United States are that intelligence agencies, American intelligence agencies, conclude that Russians interfered with the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. Meanwhile, the Michigan recount of state votes has been halted by the courts, and members of the College of Electors are being bombarded with appeals and, in some cases, threats to not vote for Donald Trump as mandated to do, as they're mandated to do. And one Texas member of the college has openly stated he will not vote for Donald Trump. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke with Michael Benarian. He's uh, one of the electors from the state of Michigan, and he talked to us about the fact that uh, he's had death threats. If you vote for Trump, you're going to die. Well, Ross Anson joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ross is also from Michigan. He's also a member of the Electoral College and, Ross, thank you very much for, for taking the time. And uh, please tell us how you became a, a member of the Electoral College. Well, thank you, Roy. Uh, <laughs> I feel quite honored to be uh, talking to such a celebrity as yourself. And uh, how I got elected to the, uh, this honor was I do a lot of hard work, uh, grassroots work in Michigan. I uh, got involved back in 2007 helping a friend get elected as a supervisor. Uh, and got involved and found out how <laughs> terribly ignorant I was and got involved in the process. So I've done a lot of work, many hours, and the uh, delegates from three counties uh, decided that it would be an honor to uh, allow me to have this privilege of voting in the Electoral College. Uh, at the time, most of us thought we probably it would be just that, an honor, and it's turned into quite uh, quite an event here with all of the... Uh, uh, allegations and the and the fear mongering that that's going on with this. Yeah, well, situation. talk talk to us a little bit about that. That Ross, what's the uh, what's the response been from across the United States? I'm sure you're hearing from many Americans who are trying to persuade you to either change your vote or or or, or, or d- demanding that you not that you follow through and you vote for Donald Trump. What kind of response have you had? Well, I am getting some positive responses back from a lot of people once they've learned uh, that. There is a campaign going on. I think an awful lot of, of the average citizen isn't aware of that, but the uh, the Hillary folks and, and the, the, the left-wing folks have taken on a number of fronts. Um, Change.org is one of them. I know that's generated a lot of this, and I'm keeping track. I have uh, over a 1,000 emails and, I, and a pile of letters here. The U.S. Post Office is making out well <laughs> with <laughs> for this thing. Well, when, when you get these, when you get the emails and the, and, and the, and the letters, are, are people reasonably um, agreeable, or are you also receiving threats? I have received no threats to my knowledge, Roy. Uh, and obviously, I can't read these. I have a couple of folders, one positive responses, one some negative responses. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to keep count, and the negatives uh, are in the, 
in the about a thousand at this point, and a handful of positives. But I'm sure there'll be more positives that come in as as more people know about the fact that all of the electors across the nation are under attack from the left, and anywhere from a one sentence, you know, please change your ballot to uh, some of these folks seem legitimately uh, fearful. Uh, I, I'm every type of propaganda I think that can be thrown their way has been thrown in their lap. Uh, even as far away as Puerto Rico, I'm getting responses to change my vote, be a, an unfaithful or it's called a faithless elector. Um, and quite frankly, there's 38. There's a difference of 74 between uh, Hillary and uh, and Trump. And so, if they change 38, if they shake up that that many uh, electors, um, I'm afraid what could happen. My my personal opinion is that the Electoral College process, which was an intelligent process then and it is now, is probably under greater attack than we've ever seen in the history of the country. Do you have a sense that it could in fact happen? Because we know this one this one uh, Texas um, elector who wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times about why he would not follow through and do what he was supposed to do according to the reason he was elected as an elector. Uh, he will not vote for Donald Trump. Do you have a sense that it could happen, that there could be enough people who would change and, and decide to be faithless electors and, uh, and, and and not vote for Trump? Roy, I really don't know. I, I certainly would hope and pray that that's not the case. Um, the, the origination electoral college in the first place in, in the, uh, as the founders of our Constitution spent many days debating uh, was that they didn't want the, the big population centers dictating the entire a political process, which it would be. Right. Uh, it is more true now, uh, if you look at the statistics, than it was back then. But you say, so you, you, you say... And I think uh, I, 38 to be turned, I, I don't think it can happen. Um, but How many are there, Russ? Is it 571? Uh, no, it's 538. 538, okay. So 538 electors... Tell us how it happens. Do you do you vote from home, or, or how do you actually cast your ballot, your vote? Each state, uh, the electors will, will get in their their buggies and they'll go off to the uh, state capitals and they'll vote in the in the, most of them. These stars at the Capitol building, right? And so on the nineteenth of December, we will convene in the on the Senate floor of the uh, Michigan uh, Senate, and we will cast our votes in that in that setting. Okay. So, and and you, the the delegates. The members of the Electoral College from Michigan are charged to vote for Donald Trump because you're Republicans and, and you represent the the Republican Party winner, correct? That is uh, After, uh, in 48 states, uh, the statute stands, uh, each of those states have uh, set that in law, that we must cast our first votes as winner-take-all. And Michigan... Uh, Trump won it, so he won the electoral votes, which is 16 here. And so we are charged uh, both from from a legality standpoint to cast our vote for Mr. Trump. If we don't, we will face a $5,000 fine and immediately be replaced with uh, a backup person that will cast the vote properly. So there's there's no if ands, or buts. I mean, there will be 16 electoral votes from the state of Michigan, and I would assume the other um, 47 states as well. There are two states that uh, do allow uh, free agents. It's in Maine and Nebraska. Now, what about the story about the uh, Russians? Uh, U- U.S. intelligence agency saying there's no question that the Russians tried to influence the election so Donald Trump could win. I would imagine that has also people contacting you and saying, look, you didn't win fair and square. You can't vote for him. Oh, that is that is the, the last couple days, the, the change of tenor of the the messages. I mean, they were playing that to the hilt. It was strange that um, the Hillary campaign didn't want to hear anything about uh, uh, the uh, invasion or supposedly invasion. Um, and so it, it, it happens to be the, the handy topic of the point, and I see Mr. Uh, Obama also opened up uh, uh, a uh, inspection of the thing. Yeah, he wants a report on his desk. the time that we have the, the swearing in on the 20th. Yeah. Ross, is there anything in the U.S. Constitution which might allow the federal government to annul the election results because of concerns about Russia interfering? 
Well, I think we're on uncharted grounds, and I'm not sure in, in the Constitution. Uh, I do know that if this uh, is upset uh, and there isn't a clear electoral vote, then the running of the United States will go to the um, uh, Congress, right? President, and that would be uh, Mr. Pence. So let's hope we never get down to those, wow. uh, those wow. points and find out. So when's the vote again? Is it December 19th? December 19th. It has to be certified uh, this coming Tuesday uh, on the 13th, and then we will cast our votes across all 48 states, uh, um, 50 states, in uh, uh, the 19th of December. That is the okay. figure that is kind of set in stone by the, the rules. All right. So, um, but your sense is that there, there isn't the, there isn't the uh, the margin available to turn uh, electors around and give and persuade them to not uh, do what they're charged to do. I don't think so. I certainly hope not. Um, I, I think we are in uncharted waters and, and very dangerous waters. And I've I've looked some of the things up that, that you speak of and so forth. So I know that you understand. Uh, um, from whence I speak. Yeah, I do. I, I, I follow uh, American politics. I'll just follow up politics very carefully. Ross, thank you very much for spending the time with us. I really appreciate it. I Again, I feel honored, and I thank you very much. Appreciate it and for all the things you do. All right, and good luck to you. Thank you. Ross Ensign from uh, the state of Michigan, one of the members of the Electoral College. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. How easy could it be for an intrusion of the emails of key Democratic Party members to have taken place during the U.S. election. How easy could it have been for a nation state to do so particularly? And how secure is even the most secure of Internet files and connections? David Fraser is partner of McKinnis Cooper in Halifax, international Internet security law experts, including personal information protection. He's the author of the Canadian Privacy Law blog, and he advises internationally on this issue. Joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. David, are you surprised at accusations that Russian hackers or hackers in the employ of Russian intelligence agencies interfered with the U.S. election? And do you believe it happened? Uh, well, certainly I, I, I believe that it happened. Whether I was surprised, you know, there's, uh, there's the old cliche that goes back well over 50 years years ago that kind of gentlemen don't read each other's mail uh, but that's obviously completely gone out the window um, am I surprised that it was possible no not not at all uh, I think that uh, that a lot of our information is not as secure as you would want it to be I think it's very difficult for individuals on their own to secure their data and I think the reality also is and this seems to be the consensus among kind of IT professionals is that if a nation state, or a nation actor is going after your data, they are going to get it. Because simply it's a matter of resources uh, that the organization has to bring to bear on the, pro- on the problem. And so if, you, if your data is on your home computer at home on your network, and you're relying on just the fact of kind of security updates and things like that, they will get in because nation state actors like the Russians and like the Americans and like the Canadians generally have access to vulnerabilities or information about vulnerabilities in computer systems that aren't well known to other hackers and also aren't well known to the manufacturers. So their holes exist because they're very complicated systems and these holes are not yet known by the companies that maintain the software and so it hasn't been patched yet. I was suggesting during our last uh, segment that I'm not really surprised that uh, this probably did happen and it is to the advantage of uh, one nation state to try to influence an election in another country, particularly if one candidate may be seen to be more friendly toward your objective. So um, the Americans are going to go back and check 2012 and 2008, but probably not all that rare that this sort of thing takes place. Well, certainly the Americans have a very long history of interfering in other people's elections. And so going back right. decades and decades... So this sort of thing kind of is not uh, is not new, not by uh, not by any means. But so I, I think that that it's probably it's more of a big political story than it is kind of an information security or privacy story. Although there's there are some lessons to be learned. From what I understand, many of the hacked emails from Podesta, one of the, the principal aides to uh, Secretary Clinton, uh, came from an attack on his Gmail account, and he actually hadn't done 
one of the most basic things to secure his account. And so they, somebody was able to actually get into the account. If you enable something called two-factor authentication that's available on Gmail accounts and, and Hotmail and Outlook.com, that prevents somebody from, even if they have your password, prevents somebody from actually getting into your account because they actually have to have, for example, your mobile phone with them or they have to have an additional kind of token for authentication. And so even just that basic step that I've, that I've had enabled for ages, Podesta didn't, and they got in through either password guessing or a uh, fraudulent password reset or something else like that. And we've seen, at least among the information security community, uh, that a number of journalists recently have gotten notifications from Google saying, hey, we've noticed suspicious activity on your account. Nobody's gotten in, but it looks like somebody has been trying to penetrate your account, kind of change your password and enable two-factor authentication. So we're, we're going to see more and more of this. when. I've seen that. I forget who it was who said, uh, when asked kind of, why do you rob banks? He said, well, that's where the money is, yeah. that uh, that this is where the, the, the information equivalent is in yeah. these accounts. David, I've seen emails like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and people need to be mindful and, and worried. The higher, the higher the profile you are, or I think journalists who uh, may in fact be receiving communications from whistleblowers, uh, well, we saw in the province of Quebec just a massive amount of surveillance of of more than 10 journalists who were not suspected of any crime, but their their emails were being intercepted in their text messages. Right. So even if you're even if you're not doing anything wrong, you still could be the target of, of these sorts of things. And then you then you have the usual run of the mill, completely boring identity fraudsters that probably are, are what most of us have to worry about most of all. So then, in essence, nothing is safe. Nothing is safe. If, if a nation state wants to go after what you have, they're going to get it. Now, so, I mean, I want to go back to what I said. Nothing is safe. So even the most secure information can be yeah, hacked no, by another nation state? That's, that's as I understand. Nothing is perfectly safe. But the reality is that the more roadblocks you put up, ultimately, the, the better. For, for most of us, like, in, unless a nation state is going after you, it's, there, there's also the old saying that talks about that, uh, that you don't have to have the most secure house ever. You're, you just have to have a more secure house than your neighbor. Like you don't have to be able to outrun the bear. You have to be able to run <laughs> the guy who's with you. Yeah. Companion. <laughs> and so, so there are things that, that we can do by being more aware of where our information is, who, who is entrusted with, but also basic password hygiene, long, uh, regularly changed passwords, use a, use a good password manager, Use two-factor authentication. Um, don't put personal data on portable devices like thumb drives. It can be very easily lost. And so you can make it more difficult for other people to compromise it. But if somebody is absolutely determined, I, I was speaking with, a, with what's called a white hat hacker. I was on a, a conference panel with, and he regularly gets hired by big companies in order to kind of find their vulnerabilities. And I asked them point blank, has there ever been a system you have not been able to penetrate? And we're talking about some big companies, and they said, no, no, there isn't. There's a vulnerability somewhere. It can be a technical one. It can be a policy one. It can be the fact that you, you put on a uniform and you look like you're there to repair the air conditioners, and people are going to open the doors for you, and you can walk out with the, with the server. So there's, there's all sorts of vulnerabilities, and, and it's up to us individually, and I think the organizations we entrust with our data to to put as many roadblocks in the way. Yeah. David, thank you very much for the time. Raises additional questions about Hillary Clinton's private server and security for that server, of course. Good talking to you again. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure. You take care, Roger. All the best. David Fraser from McKinnis Cooper in Halifax, one of the world's leading experts on security, on uh, Internet security and personal information protection. So many people do not do even the most fundamental thing, of, like getting a difficult password to guess. Using your first name and the numbers one, two, three, four, five, it's not exactly secure. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Just a tremendous amount of overnight response to two of the issues that we talked about yesterday. And uh, the first one was whether you support Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall or Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and they're clearly uh, about to develop battle over a national carbon tax. With the Premier telling the Prime Minister and the rest of the provinces, I'm not signing on, period. Manitoba didn't either, but Manitoba is looking out for some movement on health care funding 
and the Premier of Manitoba made it clear that the province is available to sign on. Under those circumstances, Premier Wall under no circumstances, and he's looking to take the federal government to court. I want to play back for you a little bit of what was said um, in that news conference, or shortly after the news conference. You'll hear the voices of Premier Wall, and then the voice of Justin Trudeau, and we'll also get to the Ontario electricity story in a couple of minutes, but let's just do this first. Here's Brad Wall. Let's listen to one clip first from the Saskatchewan Premier. And we've been rushing towards this day ever since, without the benefit of due diligence, without an impact assessment, so we can look Canadians in the eye and say, this is what it'll do to your job, by the way, if you work in agriculture, mining, or energy, or other trade-exposed industries. We're doing it without the benefit of, of a study that'll say, and this is what it'll do to your household budget. We will not be signing this framework today for those and other reasons. And here is another clip from the Premier. So there will be a, uh, an imbalance in competitiveness within the country because uh, the size and the number of emitters you have in central Canada allow them to do a cap-and-trade plan, and that, will make, and that will ensure that carbon has a much, much lower price in central Canada than it does in western Canada. And I think provinces that are, have a carbon tax right now are going to I think they're going to have a problem with that. Premier Wall also telling uh, or asking the Prime Minister, what's the point? of your carbon tax. If you're going to tax farmers for their carbon emissions or DHG emissions, and then you're going to give the money back to the province so that we can give it back to the farmers, what's the point? And Premier Wall also telling the Prime Minister, don't be naive when he said essentially that regardless of who's in power in Washington, Canada will just go its own way. Well, we can, but it's going to hurt us. Anyway, here's what uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said. We are telling Canadians and the world that a clean environment and a strong economy go hand in hand. And now we get to prove it. Okay, so uh, what sort of email response was there overnight about the Wall versus Trudeau confrontation? Not one support email, not one. Not one for Justin Trudeau. Here's an example. I support Wall. Interesting uh, that opposition to Wall or pro-Tudo peeps aren't calling into your show. Perhaps there's little or no public support for their plan. Democracy fails once again under these liberal governments. That's from Rick. Um, Brian, how can you support Trudeau, who hasn't done his homework, or carbon tax effects on Canada, especially in the West? This is a tax to grab the support special interests who continually support the Liberal Party who share left thinking. Mr. Wall is looking at Canada. Why can't our Prime Minister do the job he was elected to do rather than globetrotting for photo opportunities? Does he know his globetrotting burns fossil fuels? John writes, Brad Wall all the way. Need uh, more like you and Brad Wall with common sense leading all the rest of Canadian sheeple. Thank you very much for your show. Please keep up the good work. Well, thank you, John. Appreciate that. Uh, Donald, I agree with uh, Brad Wall. Thank goodness for Brad Wall. Our prime minister is going to make us all poorer with his carbon tax, a cruel hoax on the populace of this country. And on and on it went. I've got many more I could read to you. But I want to get to the issue of the province of Ontario. There's the other aspect of our conversation on the air yesterday. We took a lot of calls. We spoke with Alan Carter, a news anchor at Global News, and uh, in Toronto, and the um, bureau chief at Queen's Park, the Ontario legislature for Global News. It was a great conversation with Alan. Global News has done a tremendous job, a tremendous job, on the electricity issue in this province, on covering the rapidly increasing cost of electricity and what it's doing to the people in uh, the poorest people in Ontario, rurally particularly, who've had, uh, in too many cases their power cut off. Here's an email that I received from Kathy, and she sends this from Alberta. I listened to the show today, and I have to say that I never imagined that in Canada the day would come where we had discussions about people living without power because the cost was too high. People living without power because government had followed an ideology without taking into account the human cost. And in Ontario, it sounds like the solutions are being delayed while the opposition parties dither what happened to government representing the people who elected them? I'm sure Ontario voters did not vote for energy policies that would leave citizens in homes without power, but that's what they got. In Alberta, I know that during the election there was no talk of a carbon tax or shutting Dow coal mines and effectively killing small towns that are built around the coal industry. 
We have homeless people struggling to survive. And when our mayor says they can stay in LRT stations, it's announced like it's a big deal. It is good news that it was made available, but nobody's focusing on the fact that we have so many people in need and without a place to live. In January, when the carbon tax comes in, we'll have more people pushed over the edge, unable to afford a place to live, the cost of heat and electricity, food and clothing. I'm going to uh, Hope Mission tomorrow to drop off some gloves I bought and scarves I made that I hope will help keep a few people warm, but it's not enough. Next year, the carbon tax will hit the nonprofits, and I don't know how they will cope. We have a lot of people hurting in this country, and it's time the politicians started to get that. A seat on the U.N. Security Council, which Trudeau wants, will not feed a hungry family in Canada or heat their home. I'm just one person who hasn't seen a raise in three years. I say a prayer each night that my job will not be eliminated as my company cuts costs. I have friends who've been unemployed for months, and when they apply for jobs, find they're competing with 500 or more people. Where's the hope coming from? We don't want a handout. But when our government, in my case Alberta and the feds, are always acting in ways that hurt regular people, it's really hard to be optimistic. Our premier has said that we should be buying energy-efficient cars and making better choices, whatever that means. Maybe she means choosing between eating and heating our homes. I don't know. So this issue in Ontario has reverberated and is reverberating across the country. The uh, Financial Post in uh, September of last year, wrote that Hydro One will pay its top executives, or its top executive, as much as $4 million in annual compensation, according to regulatory filings, uh, slightly more than other large Canadian power companies. Hydro One will pay its CEO a base salary of $850,000 for next year. That would be 2016 with a potential $765,000 in short-term compensation and a long-term incentive of as much as $2.39 million, the filing said. The chief financial officer will get a whole a base salary of $500,000 and total direct compensation of as much as $1.5 million. Uh, because the government sold off 15% of Hydro One last year, Hydro One salaries are no longer required to be published on the Sunshine Club list. I guess many of you knew that. So what we have in many cases is the salaries from 2013. And I looked at the salaries of the top 50 salaried people at Hydro One in Ontario in 2013. And none of them made any less than $294,260. A control room shift supervisor made $294,260. The authorization training supervisor made $295,000. Another control room shift supervisor made $295,000. The chief information officer earned $296,000. Control room shift supervisor again at two ninety-six. dollars a shift manager at $300,000, and another control room shift supervisor, $300,000. That was the low end of the top 50. Meanwhile, people who have very little, who are struggling to get by, are in danger of having their power cut off or had their power cut off. Here are some of the emails from Pat. They said hundreds of thousands of jobs. They said pennies per month extra on power bills. How did that work out? Everyone's going on about the carbon tax, which is bad, but even $30 a ton tax will double the power rates in Alberta. Currently, Ontario pays five times our effective power rate, and this is before carbon tax or the cap and trade. Five times. Um... From Darlene and Rex, thanks again for what you do. Free electricity for electric cars, but not for life-saving equipment. Is it just us that thinks this is upside down and backwards? And what she's referring to is the story, is this story, that the province of Ontario, starting in 2017, so in a few weeks, will provide free overnight electric vehicle charging Now, the province intends to establish a four-year free overnight electric vehicle charging program 
for residential and multi-unit residential customers. Charging electric cars at night, they say, can help balance electricity system demands and potentially reduce costs associated with exporting excess electricity overnight. So for four years, you can charge your electric car, your electric vehicle, free for residential and multi-unit residential customers. But uh, if you haven't got the money to pay your bills, you're out of luck. Which brings me to another aspect of this that we talked about yesterday and talked about uh, with uh, Francesca Dobbin, the executive director of the United Way in Bruce and Gray counties. Amazing woman who stands firm and stands to protect the people who are clients of the United Way. A man who had a heart attack. Now, remember, four years, you can charge your electric car free. Thank you, Premier Wynn. For four years, you get to charge your electric car free. Meanwhile, a man who had a heart attack told the staff of the United Way in Bruce and Gray counties it would be financially better for his family if he passed away rather than survive. And why? His medical equipment used too much electricity and pushed up the cost of the family hydro bill. How does, it, how does any of that make even the most vague sense? Francesca said, we've had people admitted to the hospital for a mental health crisis because of their utility bills. People are changing their habits. Dobbin said many, this is from uh, Global News from Brian Hill. Dobbin said many of the clients she deals with have become obsessive, shutting off coffee makers as soon as they finish brewing a pot of coffee, not cooking a turkey during the holidays because it uses too much electricity, going to bed early because they're afraid of turning on the lights. Right. Reg writes, what is it uh, that the people in Ontario that can afford to buy electric cars get free electricity? It's like the guy who buys the diesel pickup would get free fuel at the expense of the government. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Global News reports more than 20% of Hydro One's customers in Ontario use between 25 and 400% more of their available income for electricity than the anti-poverty group Low Income Energy Network recommends. It should be 6 to 8% of total household income for heating and non-heating energy bills. For very low-income people, if they start to pay between 10 and 12% of their total household income on energy, they're going to have to make difficult choices. Food Heat, light, or rent. The wind government deserves the criticism. Earn the criticism it's receiving. But I don't hear anything in the way of anything really worthwhile from either progressive conservatives or the NDP. Not impressed with any of them. And unless you know about poverty, unless you've lived it, Neil is in Alberta. Neil, thank you for the call, sir. Hi, how you doing, Roy? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. I had a, a question here. Um, I was watching Global News and uh, Global News Edmonton, and they had an example of a a, a lady's bill, and uh, I kind of did a screenshot of it. And the amount of power she used was 4,400 kilowatts, and I compared in one month, and I compared it to mine, and I used 700. So I think part of the discussion should be how much power they're using because of heating and um, drying clothes and stuff like that, where in Alberta we're using a lot of natural gas, so it's offsetting that weight. I was just wondering, do you know how much, um, what the proportion is? Does anybody use natural gas at all of these people that are complaining? There's still nat- No, I don't know. Natural gas is still being used in the province of Ontario, but it's going to be phased out. Oh, but 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 the but the point the, but the point is that you have people who are at the very very low end of the economic scale who can no longer afford to pay their electricity because they're paying a disproportionate percentage of their household income to meet the rising bills 
and they got cut off. Then, uh, let's see here. Um, I've got some numbers here on the disconnect. Last year, utility providers across Ontario disconnected roughly 60,000 customers. You can get cut off in the middle of winter. We're not talking about people who are wealthy here. We're talking about people, Neil, who are at the lower end of the economic scale and who are rural. Wayne is in Edmonton. Wayne, thank you for the call, sir. Go ahead, please. Well, thank you very much, Roy uh, Boyd. You're like a voice in the wilderness a lot of times. Uh, and you just nailed it. That was one of the things I wanted to bring, bring up, was why is it not going to be a line item on your bill? Well, why not exactly? exactly. Why not? To slide it in through the back door. Uh, the other thing that just drives me insane is Alberta going down the same path that Ontario has gone down. Uh, Australia nixed the carbon tax after a couple of years because the billions of dollars out of the economy. Uh, you know, when you've got cases that you can just look at and say it's not working, you know, what is it they're not getting? Well, we've talked to people. We've talked to people on the air who are caught in this squeeze. And I know many of them. And uh, a lot of people here in Alberta, I'll tell you, they don't need a carbon tax. Uh, As of the, I, I read a statistic, and I, I didn't bring it with me today. I've got it, I've got it at home in my files. But the, it was the statistical increase in the use of food banks in Alberta. Oh, for sure. 2015 over 2014. And it was a really significantly large number. It was a significantly, like it was, it was in the high double digits in some areas, I, I, I wish I'd brought the information with me. I just, I don't want to, I don't want to give a number because I can't, I'm not 100% sure, well, but I have it at really home. The, uh, the, sad, <clears throat> the sad thing about that, if you just look at it uh, <clears throat> with, with Notley's plan and the carbon tax and uh, all the other great things she's brought in, uh, Saskatchewan sits number four right now for places for oil and gas investment, industrial investment. Alberta dropped 16 points. You know, uh, Kevin O'Leary, Brad Walls, bring it on. You know, this is what we need. These guys are real men. Tell it like it is. Can you imagine cutting off a family, cutting off their electricity for five months and not caring? You don't care. They don't, they don't care. Well, you know, Roy, they totally don't care. They don't care. And, and uh, the, <clears throat> the biggest way they showed that is when thousands of people showed up on the doorsteps of the Alberta legislature that had lost jobs, losing houses, losing everything they had, looking for, I know people that were making dark side of 40 bucks an hour working for 18 bucks an hour. They were there to tell them we're hungry, we're losing our homes. Yeah. What you're doing is, is losing investment, like, like trying to wake her up. What did it turn into? It was nothing but a few people shouted, lock her up. These people are frustrated. They had a, a, a couple of minutes of, uh, of burning off some steam. Well, so you know... Wing turned the whole you, thing. They, they yeah. basically ignored all these people and said, we don't care. You said lock her up, and that became the story. They, they didn't even mention the thousands of people. Look, look I'm going to be talking with, uh, with a man in Alberta who is actually internationally known next Sunday, next Saturday or Sunday, about the very fact about what happens to people on an individual basis oh, for sure. when, when their lives collapse around them because of circumstances beyond their control. So we're going to be doing that uh, next weekend. Wayne, I thank you for the call from Edmonton. We're going to be doing that next Sunday. Um, the carbon tax is an absolute folly at this particular time. The United States is not going to have one. And they are our greatest competitor. The Prime Minister has not done a, uh, an economic impact study, but there is, according to Premier Wall, there is a, a secret memo which was prepared for the Finance Ministry, which outlines just how much of a cost there's going to be. This is not just a cost to government. This cost cost to you, because government doesn't have money. Government takes our money. The cost is going to be to everybody. 
And uh, Premier Wall wants the secret memo to be released, as it should be. And why did the Australians drop their carbon tax? Because it was damaging their economy, damaging businesses, and damaging families. France is dropping their carbon tax. We're introducing one which the Prime Minister of this country calls a, an opportunity. Sean is in Regina. Sean, thank you for the call, sir. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I think maybe you guys should take Premier Wynne, lock her in a house for about three months, turn her over. No, don't say that. Don't, don't say that. Well, see how she likes to live with no power. I think the Premier needs to go and... You know what? I would think the Premier would, would benefit from going and sitting with some people who have no power, who've had the power turned off, and see how they live. Not to say, I've been told there are people who can't pay their rent and have difficulty paying for their hydro and paying for the food, and that's unacceptable to me. Words to that effect. Go and visit these people. Go and see how they live, Premier. I don't think she lasts 24 hours, never mind five Very few people, very few people, you know, would be comfortable for even two or three hours without power. And to know that there's no prospect of having it turned on for a considerable period of time would be very, very daunting. Very daunting. I think it's ludicrous in our country that people live with isn't power. It? Isn't it? Really? Because that, that's, that's so well put. It is, it is, it's abhorrent that in this country, with its wealth and its small population, and I made the argument last weekend, there's no reason for Canada to even be a dollar in debt. And here we are, we're, 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 fighting over, um, we're fighting over philosophies instead of just helping people, our own people, Canadian citizens, Canadians who need help, Provide them with the help they need. You can do that, and you can still believe in your ideologies, and you can you just, just be pragmatic about it. What happened to the politicians representing the people? I don't know. I don't know, Sean. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Thank you for the call. It has to be talked about, and I, I want to say again, Global News has done a tremendous job in covering this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There's a certain politician we've gotten to like. We've gotten to like in this country because he's a courageous guy who decided he was not just going to let um, let anyone or anything run roughshod over him. Mayor Hector McMillan from Trent Hills in, uh, in Ontario, Mayor McMillan, Living with pancreatic cancer, was uh, refused the uh, the, the uh, nano knife surgery in Ontario, and uh, there was a surgeon available in Kentucky. OHIP wouldn't pay for the surgery there. Mayor McMillan found uh, Doctor Professor Matthias Bert in Stralsund in Germany, and uh, you know the rest of the story. The mayor went to Germany, had the uh, pancreatic cancer surgery. And joined us from Stralsund, and is with us today. We we talked to your uh, your surgeon yesterday, Heck. I heard that, Roy. It's great to hear his voice again. Well, he sounds like a. Um, you know what? He sounded like a very very determined, um, good guy. He is a good guy um, and rational. Yeah, like you know. Here. Sometimes a first impression with a voice is even more impactful than a first impression looking at somebody. Uh, certainly, and um, and he's not near as formal when uh, you're one-on-one with him. Well, how are you doing? I'm awesome. Do I sound like a dying man to you, Roy? You sound like anything but a dying man to me. Yeah. I'm awesome. Wonderful. When when you were told in this province, in the province of Ontario, that the uh, nano-knife surgery was not going to be available to you, what was the rationale? Remind us of the rationale that they employed. Well, they said it was experimental and not medically necessary. I said, you got to be kidding. It's not medically necessary, um, which I since found out, which means that um, if you've got stage four cancer, uh, not medically necessary means they're not going to spend the money on you. Uh, experimental? Well, maybe in Ontario, but not the rest of the world. He told us yesterday, as you heard, that he's done at least 100, about 100 procedures. 
And he explained how it works, just as you told us how it works, where they put the electrodes in and they, they uh, deliver an electrical charge and kill the cancer cells. I suspect that's just a hundred this year. My our research and and speaking to uh, his assistant surgeon, I think they've approached two hundred now. Um, but basically, that's it. They he he's actually simplified the the system uh, differently than the Americans do. He does his uh, all his own work himself. Um, uh, he doesn't have someone else come in and guide the probes for him. Uh, he actually wrote the textbook on it. Wow. Heck, if you hadn't gone to Germany and had the procedure done, what shape would you be in now, do you think? I was told December the 4th was the last day I would live at a maximum. Wow. And here it is, December the 11th, and you, you, you sound like a pretty healthy guy to me. Oh, I've never been better. What kind of treatment, follow-up treatment are you getting? Zero. Nothing. Nothing. I'm going to go for another scan in a couple of man- months just to uh, compare notes with the one that uh, Professor Burt did after the surgery. Right. Um, I am pursuing on my own uh, another uh, procedure that's not available in Canada that's called targeted or focused chemo. And um, I had uh, a DNA sequencing analysis done in Germany on the tumor that Dr. Burt destroyed. He took uh, lots of biopsies before he destroyed it. And uh, I've now received that report, and I'm going to have another one done on the tumor that I had in my esophagus uh, five, five and a half years ago. And unfortunately, we don't have a laboratory in Canada that can do that. I'm going to have to send it to North Dakota. You're not serious. I am serious. Our health care is so far behind in Canada, Roy. You know, I spent several sleepless nights in, Canada, in, in, uh, in Stralsund, and I was thinking about Specifically, why is it as Canadians and Ontarians in particular, why is it most of us believe we have really good health care? Some of us even thought we had the best health care in Canada. And I thought long and hard about that question. And I think I found the answer. It's because our government tells us that. And if you do the research out of the 28 industrialized nations in, in the world that offer universal health care, Canada's last. It's ranked last and, bar- and deemed barely adequate. But who, who, who does that study? I believe it was the WHO. It, was a, huh. like, it wasn't something that we put together, but it was a yeah. credible organization. Well, I, you know, it's, it's so great to hear your voice. I mean, I also spoke with Sean Eckert uh, last weekend. Uh, his dad, Dwayne, had the pancreatic cancer surgery last week from, uh, by, by Dr. Burt. He's being released from the hospital today. Now, um, Dr. Burt did say to us yesterday that it's not a, a, ever a 100% guarantee, but, but certainly you were given December the 4th. Here we are on December the 11th, and you're sounding terrific. And you sent me an email this morning about the numbers of Canadians who've been in touch with you who have either gone to Germany, are going to Germany, or are in Germany waiting for, for, for surgeries, for pancreatic cancer surgery with a nanonife machine. Give us that, that info. Well, between my sister and I, we've, we've sent the information, including not just 15 minutes ago, to another Canadian patient. Um, but there is, it's in excess of 30 patients, Canadian patients, who have either gone and are already home, um, are there now as we speak, or are booked to go there, uh, that, that have contacted us and have gotten back to us saying that they're, uh, that they're there or they're booked to go there. Uh, I got another one of those this morning. Yeah. And um, and that just continues along. Um, I don't want to say that we don't. You know, we have excellent we have excellent doctors and we have excellent oncologists in this country, and 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 they and they work hard to take care of their patients. But when we look at your case, and we look at um, the pancreatic cancer situation that you were dealing with, you didn't get excellent care. You didn't get, you got no, you got, there was no caring for you from the province of Ontario. There wasn't any caring at all for you. And, uh, and Sean Eckert told us that there had been a question about whether his family would pay, I think it was $15,000 for the procedure. And they said, sure, we will. And then that was withdrawn. Now, we're going to be talking next Sunday with you, with Sean Eckert. We're going to be talking with another, um, another gentleman uh, who's had to leave 
with his son, Mike Masati, had to leave uh, Canada to go to Tijuana, uh, he felt, and he's having treatment done there. And we've heard Sean and his son, Jason. Uh, Jason seems to be doing better. So we're going to be talking about all of that with you next weekend. Heck, we've run out of time today, but we'll talk next weekend. And so great to hear your voice and hear you sounding as strong as you do. Looking forward to it, Roy. Thanks very much. All the best, Mr. Mayor. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.